0: Um, what we're going to do this morning as we start this series, and you know, we we went through um, Jonah a few months ago, and one of the things that was really cool about going through uh, a story like Jonah's is it's a story that you often hear all at once. You hear it kind of in Sunday school, or when you hear it in church, you kind of hear it sort of in in this in this one-shot thing. And um, when you do it that way, you miss a tremendous amount of what actually happens in the account and in the story, especially in Old Testament narrative. Like what we're going to see with the story of Joseph in Genesis is it covers a lot of Genesis. It covers many chapters and there's a lot of detail to it. So we're going to try to go through it um, as we think it, it kind of breaks up into natural sections and um, This morning, we're going to actually cover all of chapter 37 of Genesis. And the way that we'll do that is we're just going to read chapter 37 at the beginning. It's going to be a little long, but hang in there, and we'll put it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, and then we'll kind of go back and walk our way through Genesis 37. So this is the first part of the Joseph story, the Joseph account. Uh, It'll probably seem sort of familiar to you, many of you, Um, but um, here we go. So this is Genesis chapter 37 going to read the whole thing and we'll put it up on the screen for you too. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any Other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. And said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, "Uh, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said, tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, "'Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams.'" But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of the hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, Now I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay. That was a lot. Um, we do kind of extremes here. You know, we did a series on the soils, and we spent like four weeks on one parable. Uh, where, and then we do this, where we cover a whole chapter of Genesis in one sermon. So, no, it's going to be one or the other here. This is a lot that's happening here in Joseph's life. And it kind of helps if you know the story, which most people do ahead of time. But basically, what we're reading about here in this chapter is a, is a young man who has everything going for him and his life falling apart. That's essentially what we're reading about here. We're reading about a family that's um, got some very interesting family dynamics going on. Is like putting it nicely. And um, we're watching the result of that be that his life, Joseph's life, is going to totally be in shambles. So what happens here is uh, we read that uh, that Jacob's uh, son, Joseph, is his favorite son. Uh, Not a good start. Uh, if you want to have a peaceful family, uh, don't pick a favorite and let everybody know it's your favorite. And that's what Jacob does. He's his favorite because of who his mother was before she passed away. Um, she was Joseph's, or Jacob's favorite wife. And so uh, Joseph is his favorite son. That's what they mean by the son of his old age. Um, and uh, one of his, he's one of his youngest. He's his second youngest son. And so uh, he makes him his favorite son and gives him this coat as a way of saying, you're my favorite son. Uh, We read pretty much immediately after that that because they were jealous of him, uh, the brothers didn't speak a peaceful word to him. So there was no illusion of niceness. There was no, like, getting along. They didn't like him, and that means they were mean to him, and they were not speaking kindly to him, at least we would assume when their father wasn't around. Um, Eventually, Joseph uh, starts having dreams. And um, you know, we're talking about um, the story of Joseph, if you're familiar with it, is later on he's going to be interpreting some pretty weird dreams for people. He's like, no becomes known as the, the one who can interpret dreams that people have that no one can interpret. At this point in the story, uh, he definitely doesn't know how to interpret dreams, but he doesn't need to know how to interpret dreams because they're extremely obvious and easy to interpret. In fact, when he starts telling them to his family, they're like, Seriously? Like, you're telling us that this is uh, what you dreamt? Like, uh, and they hated him even more, it says. Uh, that's how they felt about him. He he has one dream where it's clear, it's about these um, these sheaves of, of grain. He says, you know, we're gathering up bundles of grain and my bundle of grain is taller and all of your bundles of grain are bowing down to mine. Gee whiz, I wonder what that means. You don't have to be a dream interpreter to know that, right? Then he tells them one about the stars and the moon planets and, and, and that that's actually, um, his father's the one that says to him, like, seriously, man, like, you don't need to tell us this. Like, this isn't helping. Your case at all. Uh, You're saying now that your mother and I are going to bow down and your brothers are going to bow down to you? That's not cool. And uh, so stop sharing these dreams with us. So he does this and it it makes them so angry and so filled with fury that they decide eventually they're going to kill him. Um, And so Reuben saves him from this, convinces them to throw him into a pit where they then eat a meal. Like they throw him into a pit. Now, you have to figure that he doesn't exactly know that they're planning, like he doesn't know what they're doing, right? So they've sh- thrown him into a pit that's too deep for him to get out of. It's a cistern, it would have held water, but now it's dry. He leaves him in there and they sit down and they eat a meal. They don't go away. They're not like, uh, they know that they plan on leaving him to die. They know that this is the end of his life, but they're so filled with hatred for their brother and they're so cold-hearted and callous towards him that they don't even do what I think most of us would do, which is like, okay, now that he's there, I want to get away from this and I want to pretend like it never happened and I don't want to think about it again. No, they stay right next to where he is and they eat a meal. Uh, And then some people come along and they end up selling him to slave traders. Uh, This story begins with a young man who has everything going for him. And then it ends with a young man whose life has totally fallen apart. It begins with a father who has everything going for him. He has sons, and he has wealth, and he has abundance, and all these things. He has a big, like, territory. And then we eventually find a father who says, I'm so miserable at the loss of my favorite son that I want to go down to Sheol. This is a story, ultimately, about a person's, about people's lives falling apart. Just totally falling into disaster. It's about a young man who's betrayed by the people he loves, a family being torn apart. About pain and suffering and about hopeless circumstances that seem to keep getting worse and worse. One of the things that we say often is we are, uh, it's often, it's like common for Christians and people in the church to uh, talk about how when bad things happen, that God works those things together for good somehow. That God is, is in those things but it's easy for us to throw that out when it's other people going through hard things. But when our life starts to fall apart and things start to get difficult and uh, we find ourselves left with what feels like wreckage, then we have to stop and ask the question, like, do I believe that? Do I believe that God actually is good, that God actually loves me in the midst of the fact that this mess around me is happening? Life falls apart for all of us. It does. It does it falls apart for all of us at some point. It looks different each time that it happens, but we've all experienced that. Whether it's big dramatic things that like no one can deny, that people are talking about, you know, like a death uh, of someone that is so close to you and means so much to you. Um, Whether it's the, um, the diagnosis that comes that seems so grim, like there is no possible outcome that's gonna be good. Or whether it's the things, whether it's the loss of job, whether it's the loss of resources, or those are the things that like people see from the outside in your life, and they go, "Man, that really that really stinks. That's really unfortunate. I'm really glad that I'm not having to go through something that bad." Honestly, then there's the things that we deal with where life falls apart that aren't so obvious to people, right? Uh, the anxiety that comes in, the depression that comes in. There's the the stress of like uh, I don't know how to make life work in this season right now. There's a, I don't know how to help my child through what they're struggling with right now. And I'm seeing their life get harder and harder. There's, the, there's this division going on in my own family. There's this disunity going on. We're, we're against one another. There's no harmony. Um, there maybe simply is the feeling that it's not supposed to be this hard. And things are not at all going the way that I really, really expected them to go in my life. Whatever it is, we all know what it's like to find ourselves in that place where we're like, God, if you really do love me and if you're really good, why is life like this right now? It's also not hard to see what God could do to fix it in those situations. It's not hard to see it, right? Uh, When bad things are happening and things are falling apart, it is not rocket science to go, here's how this would go away. Here's how this problem would be better. He could heal me. It's that simple or he could heal the person I love. It's that simple. He could bring me the resources that we need, or he could bring us the resources that we need, and we wouldn't any longer have to stress about them. He could heal our family and what we're dealing with and and, and what we're torn through right now. He could do that. God could do that, and yet he's not. He could help my child overcome the thing that they're struggling with. He could literally just help my baby sleep at night, like a full night. He could do it. And yet, it doesn't seem like he's chosen to do it in this night. Like, there is a senselessness to the pain and the suffering that we endure in our lives. That it can feel in the midst of it, like, what is even the point of something like this? Why would God let this happen? I will never forget having babies and trying to get them to sleep. And just being like, please God, like, let them sleep right now. And they didn't sleep. God, like why can't you just let they need it, I need it. I'm pretty sure we're all going to be better off if we get a good night's sleep tonight. I was like the master of putting my hand on a baby's back and uh, my baby's not other people's. And like uh as they're falling asleep, just slowly removing it just enough that they didn't wake up and then sneaking out of the room as quietly as I possibly could, but there was nothing worse than like being in the middle of that. And then the baby wakes up and you're like, great, now we're starting all over again, right? I remember driving my son around in our car, um, in the car seat at like two in the morning, trying to get him to go to sleep. And he just finally would fall asleep after driving around for so long. And then we'd have to the all important transition out of the car seat, out of the car, into the house, and that's when he would wake up. And I mean, it would be like, turn the lights off on the porch and get the thing open and do this, okay, open it up, get it ready, here we go. And and then he would just like, do this. And it's like, oh man, we're like, and here we go again. And you get back in the car and you drive around again, and that's how I spent a significant season of my life. Like, I'm not saying that these are always huge things, but when stuff happens that just makes life impossible, it feels kind of senseless because we know that God could stop it. We know that God could just change these circumstances and make it go differently. And the question that we're left with is why doesn't he? I think the big question that we wrestle with in life often is why does the loving God let life fall apart? Like why does a loving God let our lives fall apart at times? Why would he do that? Ultimately, the story of Joseph and his family is a story of a family that falls apart, that is ripped apart. It's the story of a young man whose life goes from having all kinds of promise to complete devastation. Now, it's very easy to read to the end of the story and do the thing that we often do where we apply some kind of a moral to it that says something like, the story of Joseph is that if you work hard and trust God and are persevering and honest, then he will reward you by making you a king in Egypt which is about as realistic as saying that if you get a cancer diagnosis that's like really bad and you work hard and trust God that he'll heal you and on top of that, he'll probably give you a book deal and then your life will be even better than it was before. So just do that because that's the story of Joseph and what it teaches us. That's not the story of Joseph and what it's supposed to teach us. That isn't what we see happening with Joseph. It's very easy to look at people like him in this story and look at the good things that he does Make those into morals. Look at the good things anyone does in a Bible story. Make them into morals and then say, this story is all about how if we can just do that thing, then God will reward us and he will bring us into even better circumstances. But that's not what the story of Joseph is about. In fact, the story of Joseph begins with tremendous dysfunction. This is one of the most messed up families ever. I mean, really, it's messed up. You start with the, you start with uh, his father Jacob, who comes from a messed up family. In fact, one of the things about Scripture that I think is so powerful is that when it recounts for us thousands and thousands of years ago what it was like when brothers and sisters came on the scene, it doesn't communicate sibling relationships as like these things of harmony and friendship. How does it communicate them? It communicates them as um, two people or multiple people competing for the affection of their parents, competing against one another. And unfortunately, what we find in much of life is that that does end up becoming the nature of many siblings' relationships, is a sense of competition almost, a sense of not wanting this person to do well, even though they're doing well doesn't really directly impact your doing well. We see it with Jacob and his brother Esau. We see it with people like Cain and Abel. Jacob is a husband with multiple wives who had no problem with picking favorite wives. Don't do that if you have multiple wives and you're Jacob, but he doesn't. And he has no problem doing it, and he lets everyone know who his favorites are. He's a father with many, many kids, and he has no problem picking a favorites and making it incredibly well known who his favorite child is. Don't do that if you have lots of kids. If you have a favorite, keep it to yourself. Don't make them a dream coat and tell them to put it on in front of everybody else. His favoritism was also totally arbitrary. Like all the brothers knew, like you only like this guy because of who his mom was. He's done nothing good to deserve it. And yet now we have to deal with that too. No matter how hard we work, no matter what we try to do, you've made it clear that you're going to love him more and so we shall hate him. The brothers were jealous of Joseph and they hated him. They had no peaceful word for him, which means this was a family where people just, they treated him, like garbage. Uh, they talked. They didn't hide their feelings from one another. In fact, it says that their hate for him grew as he kept telling them these dreams. Uh, the language being used here, after they told, he told them their dream and it says they hated him even more, if you look at the Hebrew there and you translate it directly, it says that it added to their hate for him. Like it added to their hate, like an amount of hate was added. So they basically think of like a tank of hate. And they're basically like, our our, our hate tank for Joseph, it's like three quarters full. You know, we thought it was full, but it was only three quarters full. It turns out we could put more hate in that hate tank. And now it's even fuller because guess what? He's got even another dream to tell us about. And it's a real doozy, right? That's, That's what it's talking about. They hate him so much that they're willing to kill him. It starts out probably as a joke. Like, it probably starts out as them going like, you know, uh, oh, the dreamer's coming. Why don't we just throw him in a pit and be done with him in his dreams anyway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're laughing and looking around going, yeah, why don't we do that? You know, that would solve our problem big time. They end up throwing him in a pit, wanting to kill him. And the only reason they don't is because they decide they want to make money. And their brother tries to tell them that it's better than they not kill him. Uh, These guys are total, total like horrible brothers. You even read after this chapter, we're not gonna look at it in our study of Joseph, but in chapter 37, there's a little bit of a break from the story where we read about Judah, one of the sons, and, and Tamar. And uh, what you read about even there is like horrible. He, he, has a, he has a son of his own and his son gets married, but because his son is evil, it says that God allows him to die. So then what you would do is you would have your next son take care of the wife by marrying her, which he does. Turns out he is also a pretty horrible guy. He does. So then... Uh, Judah is like, um, okay, uh, I don't know how the third one's going to turn out. Uh, they're not turning out well so far. So let's just let him grow up and see how he turns out. And then maybe, uh, so just live as a widow for a while. And then when he grows up, we'll see if it works out for you guys. Well, she gets impatient because he grows up. Doesn't seem like that much of a horrible person. And uh, so she disguises herself as a prostitute so that the father will lie with her. Because apparently that's not bad. Um, and, and then he finds out it's his daughter. I mean, this is happening with one of the brothers in this family. Like, these people are a total mess. Joseph himself. It, it opens the story by saying that he is uh, giving a bad report of his brothers to his father. But if you look at that in the Hebrew, what it says is whispering slander. So this isn't like, hey dad, listen, I really like these guys and don't tell them I told you this. And they're really great, but they're just not doing a great job. And if you could just, you know, I just want to let you know. No, this is whispering slander about a person to another person. Joseph had no problem talking badly about his brothers to his father, and they had no problem talking badly about him to anyone, especially each other. Then he starts having these dreams that are not that hard to figure out. I mean, I ask my kids every morning when they wake up, what did you dream about last night? And I can tell you there are some really weird dreams going on in my house, like crazy, weird, strange dreams uh, that you would need a very good dream interpreter to kind of figure out. That's not what these dreams are. These are extremely easy to figure out. He shares the first one. They're like, we all get it, Joseph. We all get it. Right, but he seems completely oblivious to what this is communicating to his brothers and how they're going to feel about him. Well, he goes on, and then he shares another one, and his dad's like, Joseph, come on, man. You're making it even worse, right? Stop sharing these dreams with us. It's not helping your case. He's either a sociopath and has no understanding of how his actions affect other people, or he's just incredibly foolish, which is probably more the case. He is a 17-year-old, not saying anything against 17-year-olds, but he is a 17-year-old kid who has no wisdom at this point in his life, and so he just says these things without realizing the consequences that they have at all. He has no understanding of how anything he says or anything he does is obviously affecting the people around him, especially his own family. And what Scripture tells us is that there's a reason a family would be this broken because sin goes back generation to generation. And that's what happens if you look backwards in the story. You see how people began sinning against their siblings, how parents began being unfaithful, how people were deceiving each other and lying to one another. It was always so that they could have a better life, so they could have more of a promise, so they could get an inheritance that wasn't theirs, so they could beat out someone that they were jealous for. What we find is thats that, is that Families that are this dysfunctional don't just start that way, that they often come from dysfunction themselves. What you see here is like the, one of the most dysfunctional families, if not the most dysfunctional family in the whole, whole scripture. There is no question in my mind that if there were camera crews back when this was being written, that there would be a camera crew following this family around and everyone would be watching that show. It, this would be like the real housewives of the Bible is what these guys are. The only only thing I've seen, I'll confess, of any Real Housewives show is when I'm on Netflix looking for something else and it just kind of comes up. You're like, yeah, right. No, really, I haven't watched this show. But it'll come up and you'll kind of like, it'll it'll show a little preview of it. And so they just show you the highlights of the craziest stuff happening. And all it appears to be is grown people uh, fighting, yelling, throwing drinks at each other, cursing at each other, just absolute like, Awful, horrible behavior, and apparently these are hit shows because that's exactly what people like watching. These are, that is these guys, that is this family. There's something entertaining to people, apparently, about watching dysfunctional families be dysfunctional. Why? Because we look at them and go, thank goodness my family's not that dysfunctional, right? At least we're not like that, at least I'm not like that. Well, here's the thing. We actually are pretty dysfunctional. The first thing that we see in the story of Joseph is that God is willing to do something in a truly dysfunctional family instead of just leave them where they are. The good news about that for us is that God loves your dysfunctional family. I even misspelled the word dysfunctional. And they told me that after the first service. And I was like, of course I did, because I'm dysfunctional when it comes to making slides, as we all have learned, right? So I'm leaving it, right? Uh, God loves your dysfunctional family. And what, what the story of Joseph is about is not about good people who prove that they're even better people and end up receiving a reward from God. What the story of Joseph is about is a family that is broken and God's saying, I love this family enough that I am going to do something in their midst and I'm going to do something to to meet them in that dysfunction and to shape them into something better. I'm gonna break the cycle of dysfunction. I'm gonna break the cycle of sin. I'm gonna break the cycle of unhealth that exists here and I'm gonna do it by breaking down the very members of this family. It's going to hurt, but I'm gonna do it because of how much I love them. This is truly a dysfunctional family, and the good news is that as much as we hate to admit it, we come from the very same types of things. It is so easy for us to look at others and to say, that is dysfunction. It's so easy for us to look at others and say, that person's a mess, right? It's very easy for us to believe that that we're healthier than we usually are. When we talked months ago during the parable of the soils about how there were these thorns that choke out life and how those thorns were materialism, they were basically love of the things of the world that choked out the growth of the gospel. One of the things we said was that what's so tricky about materialism is in a materialistic culture, which we live in, that we don't see materialism in our own lives. We don't. Because there's always someone else who's more materialistic than us, right? We're like, man, those people really love money. That person has a lot more money, right? I don't have enough. Believe me. Believe me. I couldn't be materialistic. I don't have enough to be materialistic. I'm not like them. And the truth of the matter is, that isn't what makes a person a materialistic person. In the very same way, we look at dysfunction. And we go, oh, I'm not like them. I'm not like that. We're not yelling and fighting and screaming at each other like this. We're doing okay. We're doing fine. But what the gospel tells us and what scripture tells us is that like, we are not as fine as we think that we are. And it's because God loves us that even though we want to live in this bubble where we're doing great and we just want God to leave us alone, keep giving us good circumstances and helping us to keep doing better, God says, I actually love you enough that I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something in your life and in your family's life even, and I'm going to do it through adversity. I think the most powerful word in this whole chapter is the first word of the last verse, meanwhile. All of this crazy stuff is happening, and then we get meanwhile. The Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. While their father is finding out the worst news he'll ever get in his life, and he is mourning to such a degree that he's saying, I am gonna go down to Sheol because that's where my son is. He's dead, and I don't wanna live anymore. And these brothers now get to walk around with and deal with the shame and the guilt of what they've done and the the just mess that it's made of their family that in the midst of the most messed up, horrible, broken circumstances any family could be in, what we find out is that meanwhile, in the midst of that happening, God is doing something with Joseph. Joseph's not dead. Uh, He isn't just in bondage, but God's actually doing something through his circumstances. And the good news about this is that God is actually going to use adversity. He's going to use the pain and trial to accomplish his good in our lives. God is always doing something in the pain. We ask the question, how can a loving God allow the kind of pain that we experience? How can he let our lives fall apart at times? And the reason that he can is because of what he intends to accomplish in that. God intends to accomplish something in that, in us, that is more important than our circumstances, being comfortable being easy, even being the way that we want them. We have our dreams, we have our hopes, we have our goals. And God says, I care about something more important than those things. I care about you and there's something I wanna do in you. Well, what is it that God wants to do in us? What is it that he wants to do in us? Because God loves us, he wants for us to be more like him. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to make us more like Christ himself. When you look at Joseph at the beginning of this story, and I'm going to tell you a little spoiler here. When you looked at him at the end of the story, you see a very different person. God has taken a foolish, selfish, spoiled, immature, kind of dumb young person, and he's made him into someone who looks a lot more like Christ. He's made him into someone who shows grace. He's made him into someone who has compassion. He's made him into someone with wisdom and with perseverance. God has shaped Joseph over the course of this trial and this pain into someone who looks a lot more like Jesus. And that is exactly what God wants to do in each and every one of our lives. There is no question about what God is doing in your life in the pain. There is no question What he is doing is he is shaping you into being more like Jesus. I know that's not our first priority most of the time, but it is his, and it's exactly what he's working to do. Sometimes these things that we go through, the way that our life falls apart, they're the result of things other people have done. We feel totally out of control of them. Sometimes it's the result of things we've done. Sometimes our own uh, bad uh, mistakes, our own own sin, our our own errors, the things that we do that create these messes, sometimes it's us causing them to happen, and we feel guilt and we feel shame. In that, even in that, God says, I'm going to use this mess that you find yourself in to shape you into being more like Jesus. Scripture is very clear. God does not cause sin, but God allows it, and he allows it for a reason. He allows it because of how those things that suffering will shape us. God loves you enough to reshape you and to, and to grow you into something, into someone who is better. Romans 8.28 tells us we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for the good because they've been called according to his purpose. This is the scripture that we appeal to, that we go to when life is falling apart. How on earth could this be good? How on earth could God be in this right now? It does not feel like he could be. I do not see a way forward of hope. What is the good that God is accomplishing in this? He is making me more like Jesus. God loves you enough to allow the things in your life that will reshape you and that will grow you into someone who is actually better. Someone who is better for your family, someone who is better for the people that you were around, someone who is better for the poor and for the hurting and for the broken. He is making you into someone who looks even more like Jesus. But the hardest part about the pain, I'm convinced, is that we, it forces us to give up on our dreams. We all have a picture of how life is supposed to look. We all have a picture of how we want things to be. And when the pain comes and when life starts to fall apart, that is the first thing on the chopping block. We go, I don't, I'm losing the life I wanted. I'm losing the future that I wanted. I'm losing the circumstances that I wanted. I'm losing even having a family that looks the way I want. Because a lot of times, what happens is the dysfunctional family seems like a perfect family on a Christmas card. I like, like, we'll drive through neighborhoods sometimes, and we'll drive by, like, the most amazing, beautiful house, like the Home Alone house, you know? And uh, and my family will be like, oh, my gosh, look at that. That looks so nice. And I'll always say, like, they must love each other so much, you know? Like because look at how nice that house is, right? Because what we know is true is that like you can look great on a Christmas card and you can have a wonderful, beautiful house and you can have a really comfortable sofa that people sit on. I'm sofa shopping right now, so I've been thinking about that. Like you can sit on that and be like, we're gonna love each other more on this couch. Like, like family devotions are gonna happen now because of this couch, right? Like you can have the right looking family, you can have the right looking house, you can have the things that from the outward appearance seem really good. And you just want to keep those things going. But God knows you well enough to know there's dysfunction in you. There are things in you that I want to change. There are things in you that I want to reshape because I love you so much. I'm not fooled by this stuff. I know there's things. But what in order for me to do that, you're going to start to lose some of these things. Your life might start to fall apart. You're gonna to start to lose some of the things that look great on the Christmas card. You're gonna to have to write a different Christmas letter this year. You're gonna to start to lose some of the things that make it look nice and easy from the outside because those were the dreams that you had. Those were the things that you were working towards and it's losing those things that is so painful for us. Joseph's whole life ahead of him must have looked one way in his mind and then he finds himself in a pit. His father had obviously way too much of his hope wrapped up in this one kid And he lost him. And now his picture of the future was gone and he wanted death. In order for us to walk through what God wants to reshape us in, we have to be willing to let go of what we wanted before. I want to close with a story that I read in the news this last week. I saw this headline and it kind of shocked me. And I thought, I'm going to read this story because this can't be a real thing. Like there has to be a twist in the story. And um, uh, there wasn't. Uh, The headline was, I loved my fiance, but after his brain cancer diagnosis, I knew I had to leave him. I read this and I was like, okay, I got to read this story. And I read it and uh, there is not a point in the story when you're like, yeah, they definitely made the right choice there. It's a story about a young woman who began dating a guy during the pandemic. And she talks about what she liked about him um, in in this article. She says, I always think that a great way of telling if you have a good relationship is that you feel like you're a better person when you're with your partner. I felt that with Gel is his name. He challenged me to be kinder, more aware of what is going on in the world, more curious. I was so happy and felt so lucky to have met this amazing man. So they got engaged. They were planning on buying a house, and um, he got sick. And he was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and it seemed um, like even though there would be a huge operation to remove the tumor, that there was such a grim prospect for the future, that she immediately realized that all the plans and hopes that she had had for their relationship was now not going to be a reality. She said, I felt like the man I loved was slipping away from me. I had been so close to having everything I wanted and then all of a sudden it had been snatched away. We were on a certain path to a certain future and within one day we knew it wasn't going to work out like that anymore. She was so devastated by the loss of the dreams that she had that when given a choice to continue walking through this with the man that she loved, or walking away and trying to pursue those dreams, still, she chooses to walk away. She talks to her family about it and they encourage her to wait until after he has the major brain surgery to talk to him about it. So she says, they warned me not to tell him my decision until at least after his surgery. So I went to stay at my mother's and in late September, he went into the hospital for a 17 hour operation to remove the tumor. At 4 a.m. I received a call from his surgeon. He was out of the operating theater and was talking and moving his arms and legs but he'd also been left with some quite severe brain damage and had to get used to living with disabilities. He had double vision and paralysis on the right side of his face. He also had motor skills issues and had to learn how to write and walk again. She said, despite all this, he had coped amazingly well, me less so. So she went to see him in the hospital. She sat down across from him and she said, I can't see a way to be happy with you anymore and I have to leave you. And that was the end of their relationship. It's really tragic to read this um, because when given the choice of walking through something painful with him and allowing herself to be reshaped in that process, she chose to walk away and hang on to the dreams that she had. Now, it's not all bad because she says she still wanted to help. This is sarcasm, by the way. She said, I felt so helpless watching all of this unfold, so I knew I had to do something. So she decided to run a marathon in his honor to raise money for cancer because she wanted to do something to help. She said, training has been really physically and mentally challenging. Just keeping going when you're so bored is challenging. But I have the best motivation. If Jell can go through all of this, then I can run a marathon. And that's the end of the story. She actually wrote the story for the purpose of raising money for the marathon. And I don't normally read comment sections Um, I assume they're pretty horrible places on the internet, but I did read the comments on that one because I was kind of curious how people would respond to this. And the comments were overwhelmingly people saying, I've been faced with the same thing and I chose something different and I was better for it. I read this article and I just thought like, this is exactly the choice that we have when life starts to fall apart. And we don't think we have a choice. We don't think we can choose. We think, if I would stop this, I could. If I would get out of this, I could. I would. But the truth is, we still do have a choice. When things start to fall apart, and life starts to get painful, and we start to lose the things that we were hoping for, the dreams that we had, the choice is, am I going to focus everything I have on keeping those things to the best of my ability, on obsessing over those things, and doing everything I can to stop the pain now? Or am I going to ask the question, what does it mean for God to do good in this? Because the question, what does it mean for God to accomplish his good in this, has a very clear answer. It means asking the question, God, what is it that you want to change in me right now? Where's the dysfunction that you want to get from me? What is the thing that you want to reshape in me? How is it that you're making me more like Christ in this? But we have to choose that. If we don't, we'll fight it the whole way. We'll refuse to acknowledge that that's something that God is doing. And even though God can overwhelm all those things and still accomplish something in our lives, and he does at times, I think our part in this is being willing to say, am I okay with letting go of these things that are hurting in the hopes that God can sanctify me through it? Let's pray.